Welcome to Anti-Aging Unraveled with Dr. Lori Gerber. The body is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. Dr. Gerber and her guests explore integrative medicine and cosmetic dermatology, combining traditional medicine, alternative health practices, new innovations, and technology, which work together to help you look and feel natural and age gracefully. Now, here is your host, Dr. Lori Gerber. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Lori Gerber with Anti-Aging Unraveled, and I'm here with another fun topic for you this evening. And I hope to make this interesting. Um, I think it can be a little bit of a dry topic, but it's one that I do hold pretty close to my heart because I do have problems with it myself. So it is the thyroid gland. And if you um, had listened to my last week's um, episode, we did discuss how insulin and the metabolic system is all related and how these hormones can all play off of each other. And I think the thyroid is probably one of the most important ones that Honestly, maybe we've regressed in how we treat it over the years instead of progressed. And, you know, when you look at history, which we're going to talk a lot about history and what has happened with this over time, I think it'll make a little bit more sense as to why we ended up where we did. But um, in any case, it's how the thyroid gland, how it works, and really why am I gaining weight? I think this my summer topic of choice is really to help people lose weight and to do everything that we can to really get our bodies working optimally. So I'm going to spend the first kind of half of our show doing a little bit of what the thyroid gland is, um, some history, and then towards the second half, we'll talk about treatments and how the treatments have changed possibly and, and how they're not necessarily uniform for each person. So on any note, Let's kind of talk about the thyroid. So I learned I had thyroid disease in um, actually end of med school, beginning of residency. And the biggest thing is I felt exhausted. Um, Yes, I was working all the time and I was running crazy hours, but I was physically, my eyes could shut at a stoplight. And I think that's the biggest complaint that most people have when they have low thyroids or hypothyroid is that they are exhausted. They can't gain weight. Um, Their thyroid is responsible for regulating the rate at which we burn our calories, basically. So when we don't have that um, capability, we gain weight, even if we're eating well. So it can also raise body temperature. We can maybe be getting hot, flashy, or feel like we're burning up. Um, Difficulty with regulating your temperature in general. So meaning maybe you're in the middle of the night and you start to sweat in the middle of the night, or you can't tolerate the cold. Um, But it also can affect the way your muscles contract. So a lot of our athletes will complain when they feel like they're not recovering, maybe they're getting muscle cramping, and and that's a big problem. Um, the other thing too is it controls the um, the rate at which cells, the dying cells, are replaced. So again, that has to do with recovery, right? So we're not recovering or um, keeping our immune system in necessarily a, a good enough level that it needs to be. Um, so let's see. We talked about calories. We talked about temperature weight, digestive system. So the digestive tract is huge in this. And we get a lot of people that complain about digestive issues in my office. And it's one of those things where we can go any number of routes, but we always do look at the thyroid. You know, a slow thyroid will actually slow down the rate at which your digestive system moves. And by the same token, um, it'll keep you from necessarily going, having regular bowel movements. That is a big deal, especially for weight loss, right? So we want to be able to digest our foods, get them through our system, and absorb our nutrients. Um, The other thing is we can actually start to have an irregular or racy um, heartbeat. And whether that's high or low, it can go in either direction. But palpitations um, or maybe what we call like a bradycardia, 
um, which is a slower heart rate, we can go either direction with um, thyroid abnormality. So, you know, when we go to our doctor, I think this is a big uh, question I get a lot is, you know, how come my doctor only checks a TSH? Well, a TSH is a thyroid stimulating hormone. And, and really what that means is it tells the body to make more thyroid hormone. It is saying, hey, guys, give me some more thyroid hormone here. I need it. And it will go up in response to increasing demand or need. And that is fine to check in many cases. But the problem is, is not everybody does that whole system work appropriately. So meaning when you have enough thyroid hormone, in theory, it should shut off that TSH. When you don't have enough thyroid hormone, it should turn on that TSH. But what happens when that circuit doesn't work right? It basically, you're checking this number that's not really a true thyroid number. It doesn't make you feel, quote unquote, any better when it's high or low. It's the T3 and the T4, which are actually your thyroid hormone, that really drive how you feel and your metabolism and all the things we just talked about. So, the thyroid gland makes this stuff called T4, which is an inactive kind of a um, more of a, a generalized thyroid hormone, and then it converts it into T3. And T3 is the, what we call the metabolically, or I like to call it the metabolically active hormone. It's what we feel. It's how we feel better. And those two things are your thyroid hormones. So we also check something called a reverse T3. Um, without getting into too much detail, that will tell us kind of if you're being, if you're able to make T3, the active stuff from T4, it actually will convert. Now, what are these, you know, T3s, T4s, what does that mean? And, you know, I think the thing to understand for most of us is that they are the thyroid hormones and the numbers are the amount of iodine they carry. So we're going to get on this topic of iodine and it's a really interesting topic, and I actually, even I learned more than I knew about the history of iodine, but T3 means it has three iodine molecules, and T4 means it has four iodine molecules. In order for us to go from one to the other, we actually have to um, do a process of deionization, which is literally, deionization is taking an iodine off or reionization is putting it back on. And, and, and really, all we're doing is using like an electron transport. We're transporting these things across um, a membrane and we're, we're, we're doing molecular biology, right? We're doing the things that we all hate to remember from med school or from, from school in general. And in order to do that, we need a lot of things. Um, we need vitamin D. We need vitamin A and K2. We need a lot of methylated B12. We also need something um, like iodine to actually give us an extra iodine molecule. Um, and we need a process called methylation. And methylation, in a lot of people, can be deficient. So all of these things go into being able to make your thyroid hormone appropriately. And iodine is super, super important. So, you know, 65% of T4's molecular weight is um, iodine. And we ingest iodine, okay? That's how it's absorbed. That's how it's carried through the circulation as iodide. Um, and, you know, our thyroid concentrates that iodide. So it actually takes that iodide and it concentrates it and it uses it as a, as a transporter um, to actually take it off of the T4 and make T3. And every single person needs it. And the problem is, is we the way that we've ingested and taken in iodine over the last several decades, actually, um, up to the last several hundred years has really changed. And we need 
every cell in the body needs thyroid hormone for metabolism. It doesn't matter um, where you are in the body. And about we produce about 80% of this T4 stuff and about 20% of this T3 stuff. But the cool thing about T3 is it's really, really strong. So the active metabolic part of our, um, of our thyroid hormone is, is really strong. It's four times stronger than T4. So again, when I talk about what you feel, you get benefits from both. But I think most people feel symptomatically better when they have their T3 levels appropriate. So when we get our numbers checked, and specifically when I check thyroid, I'm checking for TSH, T3, T4. We're checking what we call that reverse T3. And we're checking for antibodies to your thyroid. Because if you listen to any of my last one, I encourage you to do it because it really ties in nicely. We have a tendency to make antibodies to things that are inherent in our own body. That's a problem, right? We're fighting ourselves. Anything autoimmune is not a good thing. And the thyroid is probably one of the most common um, early on to start fighting. Um, And honestly, we can fight our insulin and we can start to have these what I call autoimmune um, kind of diabetic triads. But thyroid and insulin resistance go hand in hand. So how do we fix this? And, and well, one, how do we find it? And we have to really look for these antibodies. Antibodies to your thyroid are not normal. You shouldn't have them. So having even some of them, even at a low level, is not necessarily normal. Obviously, the higher your numbers are, the worse you're fighting your own thyroid, the harder or more difficult or worse the symptomatology is. And, you know, I feel like we need to look at that to understand how we're going to replace our thyroid hormone. Um, there are differences in how we replace it, and we're going to talk about that too. So um, we kind of touched on hyperthyroid or hypothyroid. I want to just touch on hyperthyroid, and that's not something I'm going to go into a lot today, but hyper or overactive thyroid really can mean that you have too much um, T3 in the bloodstream, that your, oh, your overactive thyroid gland and Graves disease, which is an autoimmune like stimulation of the thyroid gland is one. Um, benign tumors or inflammation of the thyroid gland can cause it. And this can cause weight loss, increased appetite, racing heart. Um, they Low or high can cause irregular menstrual cycle. Believe it or not, hyperthyroid can cause tiredness as well, but it can also cause you to be very irritable and very racy. So these are things that we want to look for when we're talking to our patients about symptoms. Um, you know, obviously taking uh, medication can make you hyperthyroid, but what we're going to talk about in a few minutes is usually, um, that can only happen when you ingest what we call T3 and T3 is a, um, is called cytomel and that's a, a hormone that's only T3. So that can obviously happen as well. So I'm going to kind of go backwards a little bit and talk about, um, why do we need iodine? And we kind of briefly spoke about iodine and the transport chain. And I'm not going to go into really how it all works because I think it's not really necessary to understand that we need iodine. Um, it is a very, very important process in the hormone pathway for thyroid. And without iodine, the thyroid does not function. Now, we've gone through various, I would say, controversial um, things in history that maybe um, refute and um, that have tried to refute iodine necessity over the years. And I'm just going to take you back a little bit because I think this is really interesting. And to me, I I like to see the history and the chronological um, part of, of medicine because it does, we medicine and history repeat itself. Um, And I think iodine is a very good example of, of maybe coming full circle. And 
because really we've been treating the thyroid since the early 1800s. Okay. So the thyroid iodine connection was found um, shortly after 1811 when they found that um, iodine was in seaweed. And eight years after, so 1819, there was the, um, they started using iodine for the treatment of goiter, simple goiter. And goiter is just the enlargement of the thyroid. So when the thyroid would get large, um, it would cause obviously unsightly, um, you know, cosmetic effect, but it would also cause thyroid abnormalities. So we started to give iodine to treat this goiter. So iodine sufficiency um, was basically, you know, one of those things that was commonplace. We wanted people to have enough iodine. Why? Because in our brains at that time, iodine sufficiency or enough iodine equaled a lack of a goiter. So what happened is they started to, um, in the early um, 1920s, there was a lot of testing that was started to be done um, by a gentleman with last name of Marine. And he literally found that nine milligrams per day of iodine would help in the prevention of simple goiter for adolescent um, girls. So, you know, they they took this this guy's studies and they said, okay, this is amazing, right? So they really said, all right, iodine, def- iodine deficiency is not good. Iodine deficiency causes goiter. Iodine sufficiency, we see that their goiters are all decreasing in size and number. Do the, and, and honestly, people aren't getting sick. It actually decreased the amount of people that were not showing up for school and due to ab- absence and sickness as well. So iodine was kind of the, the golden child for thyroid at the time. And, and that really um, led us to, like I said, the early 1900s, 1970 to 1924, where, um, you know, we said we have to get rid of iodine deficiency in everybody, basically. Um, so what we decided to do was to iodize salt, right? We all know about iodized salt. And um, iodization is a process by putting iodine into salt so that when it's ingested, it actually becomes um, iodide. And, you know, we, we really pushed this on, on the population because we wanted everybody to have iodine to get rid of these thyroid diseases. However, you know, what we knew was bioavailable iodine was, that was needed to prevent what we call cretinism, goiter, and hypothyroidism um, was about 60 times less than um, what they were putting, or 60 times more than what they were putting in the salt. So salt was getting 0.05 milligrams per day. Now, this is interesting because why would they cut it back so much? And, and the reason they cut it back is because there's this, there's this um, fear of over-iodized um, iodization. So we don't want too much iodine, but yet we want to prevent these diseases. And this is where history kind of triggers us to go back another direction. So, you know, we thought, wow, we're going to put salt and all the uh, iodine and all this salt. We're going to encourage people to use salt and thyroid disease is going to be a thing of the past, especially with goiter. And really what we, when we look at it critically, what they put into salt was about, like I said, 60 times less than the amount that was needed um, to prevent goiter in, in the women's study from, from the, um, from Dr. Murray. So let's think about that for a minute too. Let's fast forward to now. We encourage people not to use salt. We encourage people to use sea salt. So even any kind of iodine that we were going to get from salt at this point, many people don't get, right? We're not, we're not salting anything, especially with regular table salt. And the, the amount of true, um, iodide that we're getting in salt is very, very, very low. So 
the way we used to give ourselves iodine as opposed to giving it in salt was with something called a Lugol solution. Lugol solution was kind of cool. You'd, it was just a dropper. You'd put it in your water or you'd put it under your tongue and you'd get it from the apothecary. And the, you know, we would get about 12.5 to 37.5 milligrams of elemental iodine. Um, and, you know, that when you put that into a dropper form and you use 0.1 to 0.3 mLs a day, you know, you're getting a lot more elemental iodine. So this was the exact amount of iodine needed for whole body sufficiency. And what when you look at the all the studies that were done back then, you were able to suppress goiter much more efficiently and thyroid disease much more efficiently than um, when they put the iodized salt out there. And there was a huge push to get people to use the salt. And if you would I would even call it a propaganda um, campaign because really, it, it, if you look at the even the ads that were out there, it was extremely um, detrimental to the Lugol solution and really just pushed you to use salt in general, even though they knew that it wasn't sufficient or enough um, to be the same amount as the Lugols. So people that were switching over would find that they would, didn't feel as well. Um, and then obviously we had a a rise in thyroid disease still, even though we still had iodine and salt. So, you know, we know it wasn't enough, um, but it was more than people that weren't taking in anything. So it did increase, um, you know, the amount of, of iodine in our body and it decreased the amount of radioactive iodine that our thyroid would take up, but not enough. So um, it really represented about less than 1% of the daily recommended um, intake of iodine. So, Let's, let's kind of go into um, a little bit more of the history as we fast forward. So let's talk about medical textbooks. Medical textbooks in the 1930s, again, maybe fast forward were five to 10 years, basically took all the information that was from the late or early to mid 1800s and really forgot about it and started to really propagate this idea that um, we don't need iodine um, as a supplement or a replacement that really, um, you know, hyperthyroid, it, it really took iodine and completely ignored the thyrologist's um, iodine deficiency gorder studies of hypothyroidism and just said, really, the treatment of hypothyroidism is um, giving a thyroid extract solution, um, which is a glandular. It's, it said, hey, let's just give, um, let's just give you basically T4. Um, and, you know, okay, it sounds, it sounds great, right? But the problem is, is again, we know the physiologic compound. We know how thyroid hormones made now. It's T4, it's T3. We need iodine to be able to do that conversion. So even if I give somebody a whole lot of T4 um, in their body, which is essentially what they're, they're talking about, it's this inactive hormone. It doesn't do a lot. And then you have to still make it into T3. So what happens when you can't make that T3? You never feel any better. You get a whole lot of T4 and you don't have any iodine and then you can't make any T3. So you're metabolically speaking, you never feel any better. And, and that's really the, the problem that started to occur um, in the 1930s when iodine became completely ignored. Like I said, it was eliminated from the textbooks um, and, you know, iodine deficiency was starting to say, they were starting to say that it actually induced um that it induced problems, more problems than it did than it did good. So that is where we started to have this what we call iodophobia or the shift in iodine. And there's a couple of key um, p- 
points to that. And, and that's probably where I'll go next is I'll talk about the authors that really, really shifted the paradigm here. And it was really, um, after World War II is really when we really got this scare of taking iodine out of everything. So since we, since we stopped putting iodine uh, or start, stopped giving um, credence to iodine and what we like to call iodophobia or iodine neglect, there was, became a systematic attempt um, to really pull iodine out of everything. And iodine at the time was also used um, for bread. And it was used to, as a preservative in bread. And, you know, which is great, right? We get some extra iodine. That's awesome. The problem is, is when they started pulling iodine out of bread, and actually this became a, um, a pretty global effect, they, um, especially, and the United States was the fore, at the forefront of this, that all this misinformation wanted this iodine pulled out, but instead they put in bromide. And, you know, bromide is, no, is not good for you either, right? So we're putting in a carcinogenic preservative as opposed to keeping in iodine because we're all afraid of this iodine. So um, if you really want to know how iodine was killed, there's Wolf and Chikoff from Berkeley in 1948. And they basically said, and it was a very, obviously a flawed study, but they were putting iodine in rats and um, they actually, their conclusion was that it blocked the synthesis of thyroid hormones resulting in hypothyroidism and goiter. Now, meanwhile, they never checked thyroid hormone levels in the rats. Okay. They, um, so the, it was a very flawed study and I've actually gone back to take a look at it, but that's called the Wolf-Chikoff effect. And how sad that these two, this one study, and this is very common, to be honest, um, one study changed the way we think about iodine in this country. And the second thing that happened, fast forward um, about 15 years, is in 1969, Wolf um, moved to the NIH, the National, National Institute of Health, like so many of our esteemed um, researchers do. And when he went there, he basically divide, defined what he called four levels of iodine excess. And they were, they were actually completely ludicrous. And in the 1970s, um, it was so prominent because he's from the NIH and he has this big name that all physicians basically concluded that um, inorganic non-radioactive iodine um, was, was basically taboo and not a treatment anymore. Um, so they, they really, this is what they call the Wolf-Chikoff effect. And it really just paradigm shift in the way we think about iodine. Now, iodine, I feel like is making a full 360 at this point, right? It's coming back into favor. We are finding out that, um, you know, there is a way to safely dose iodine, um, especially um, in populations with Hashimoto's thyroid because it's very difficult to get them to start shutting down their antibodies. So we need to get any thyroid that's being produced, produced efficiently. So, um, you know, we, we, and, and actually, you know, I, there's even some, what I would call conspiracy theories out there that say that the pharmaceutical companies knew when iodine was being pulled out of bread in the early sixties and that they knew that people would become deficient in T4 because they were every loaf of bread had about 150 micrograms of um, iodine. So, you know, it's a full daily dose of iodine. And how interesting that maybe they knew and they were able to uh, simultaneously release um, drugs for um, T4 replacement. And 
why is T4 a little easier for the pharmaceutical companies? Some people say that because it's not a true T3, which is that thyroid hormone replacement, there's less side effect profile. You have to make T3 out of T4. Um, so it's a much safer profile to create and everybody's going to need it because once you pull that iodine out that people have been used to having and that they need, it will later become the most prescribed drug in, in the United States, which it did. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, happenstance there and whether, you know, it's truly serendipity or that they, they knew what was going on, um, I guess it's not really for me to decide, but I can tell you that you know, if one slice of bread was giving you the daily recommended iodine and we pull that out of our daily um, routine, you know, somebody's going to realize that iodine deficiency is going to create an issue. Okay. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about, let's see here. So iodine um, in general, now what we kind of conclude is you need about um, six milligrams um, for daily intake and whole body sufficiency anywhere from 12.5 to 50 milligrams um, daily. So for the thyroid itself, six, the whole body, 12.5 to 50. Um, I would say most of us, when we prescribe it, give you anywhere from six to 25, um, depending on the person. And it really does help to stabilize a thyroid. I would say um, for people that what we, what we call poor converters, where you can't make T3 from T4, um, it really helps to have that extra iodine around. I always say it's like having the kitchen sink full of iodine. If you have a lot of iodine, you can pair them up and pull them off. If you don't have a big sink of iodine and you don't, it's not sitting around, you got to go find it, which is a lot more difficult. So, you know, um, when you think about what you're going to take and why you're taking these things, um, I think it's important to think critically about the pathophysiology and not necessarily about the studies that have been put out there. Yes, studies are important, but they're biased. Um, sometimes their conclusions are not appropriate for the time. Even if maybe they're appropriate for the time, maybe we didn't know how to do something at that time. So I think these are really important things to remember to go back and critically look at over time. Um, okay, so. Let's talk a little bit about, let's do a little bit about treatment. Let's, let's like skip to treatment a little bit because I do have a lot to say about this. So there, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that vitamin C um, improves iodine transportation. So when we talk again about what to take and how to take it and why we're taking it, um, we know that vitamin C um, helps with the what we call a defective cellular transport chain. So it helps for iodine to work a little bit more efficiently when it repairs that chain. Um, so, you know, I think that if we're going to take iodine, we should be taking A, D, and K, which will help the thyroid to work a little bit better. We should be taking vitamin C um, to help it work better as well to get it in there. Um, so, you know, the other things that I think are important are methylated B12. Um, B12 is required for helping the thyroid um, to make its T3 as well. Without a lot of B12, what I, it's what I call those cofactors. We can't make it very efficiently. So, um, you know, those are two things that I think everybody should be on that are, are in addition to your iodine. Now let's talk about the different types of thyroid replacement because there's a little bit of history here as well. So the first thing um, that came out was what we call desiccated thyroid. And desiccated thyroid is, um, a lot of people know it now as armor thyroid. Um, there was a brand that was recently um, 
One of my favorites has been temporarily suspended, which was Nature Throid. And these are literally, um, I like to say it's thyroid gland that's like dehydrated and purified and put into a capsule. Because really it's desiccated porcine, which is pig hormone, and it's got T3 and T4. Why is that important? Well, we're giving you both biologically active materials, right? Whereas um, the pharmaceutical companies, um, when we were talking about earlier, they really preferred T4. But if you can't make T3, let's say you don't have iodine, you don't have D, you don't have B12, you, you, know, you don't have A or K, then you're never going to get enough T3 to feel better. So desiccated porcine hormone is um, what we would call 38 micrograms of T4 and 9 micrograms of T3, Okay. So again, it's that four to one concentration, but it also has all the other compounds and calcitonin, things that go into making a thyroid work that are in the thyroid gland in this desiccated thyroid hormone. I like it for a lot of patients. Now, um, there again, there's a lot of controversy over it, um, probably in the 90s really, um, about standard of care, but really it was the standard of care from the 1890s through 50 to 60 years. Um, until really 1970, um, when, when they started making T4 standard, um, thyroid replacement hormone extract. So, um, initially it was made from beef or pork. They did change it to porcine for it to be a little bit more close to four to one, just like our human, um, thyroid gland. And, you know, it brings us everything we need. So, you know, I think that we have to understand that, we're giving you back essentially the entire thing that you're missing as opposed to T4, which we're going to talk about, which is only one portion. The downsides. Um, it has a shorter half-life. So when we talk about how long it lasts and how long it takes our body to break it down, our body only breaks it down. It breaks it down very quickly. So let's just say, for example, it's gonna, it has a half-life of maybe like six hours. In three hours, it's cut in half, Right. Um, that's really how half-lives works. And every time you have a half-life, it's broken down in half more, more and more and more. So the shorter the half-life, the less it lasts you and your body. So as opposed to T4 um, and some of these other compounds, Armour has a shorter half-life. So I do recommend for many people to be dosed twice a day, okay? Because by mid to late afternoon, you may find that it's starting to wane. That's not in everybody, but I would say that is kind of the... Um, the uh, more common thing. And, you know, I would say that we're, we're taught in med school to use T4 um, because desiccated thyroid is unreliable and unstable. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Synthroid. So I think that that is probably um, a huge misinformation. Yes. Can it be, um, can there be differences in the amount of thyroid compound in each desiccated thyroid pill? Yes. Is it safer and more effective than most people feel on Synthroid or a various brand of T4? Yes. So, um, you know, I think it did fall out of favor for a long time. But the interesting thing is in 1985, the, um, the U.S. Pharmacopeia, they actually revised their standpoint um, from what they were training in med school and said that um, armor or desiccated thyroid were... Um, that the content met the standards for st um, stable potency. So, you know, despite um, them teaching that it wasn't um, a good sample, 
or it didn't have a stable enough um, potency. In 1985, that changed. And I think we're finally starting to see the shift in people taking armor thyroid again. I mean, I can, I can tell you that when I... Uh, I remember when I was younger, um, one of my relatives taking armor thyroid or a desiccated thyroid hormone. And I went to med school and never heard about it until I came out and had a couple of people that were on armor and I didn't really know what it was. So again, I think it's interesting to see how it's shifting. And um, so let's just kind of do a little bit of the studies on, on the desiccated thyroid hormone. I think they're interesting. So in 2018, there was a survey of 12,000 patients being treated for hypothyroidism with both levothyroxine, which is T4, um, T4 plus T3, which is levothyroxine and leothreonine. Um, and they found that people, and, and also with um, what we would call desiccated thyroid hormone, they found that people taking the desiccated thyroid were overall happier with their treatment than the other two types of therapies. So, and they reported improvement in their memory, weight, fatigue, and energy. And, you know, in 2013, there was a similar study comparing them, and they found that the for weight, that at the end of the study, there was not a lot of difference between heart rate and blood pressure um, and that kind of thing, and cholesterol, which we really wouldn't expect. But there was a three-pound average difference and decrease in their weight on the people that were on desiccated thyroid hormone, and that was in 16 weeks. So we're not talking about huge amounts of time here. We're talking about over the course of... Um, four months. So, you know, this is an interesting thing, not even four months. So this is an interesting thing um, to say three pounds. I mean, 3,600 calories in a pound, that's pretty significant. So I, I would I would caution or you to switch yourself over to T4. I would see a lot of people that go to their primaries that have been on armor for a long time and they switch over to T4 um, and their numbers, quote unquote, per their doctor are okay. But they're told that they're, um, and they're told they're fine, but they don't feel as well. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Um, so, and by the same token, let's talk about T4 on the other side here. So T4, again, has to be converted to T3. It is what we would call a, um, a thyroid hormone by itself. It's not desiccated. It's just a purified thyroid hormone that's produced and manufactured. Now, if you take that T4, and you um, put it into the body, again, if you can't convert it to T3, it's not going to be very usable for you. Okay, what does that take? B12, vitamin D, iodine, A, K2. So these are all things that go into being able to make your thyroid hormone active. Okay, so it was first available in the 1950s. And, you know, at first, to be honest, they were reluctant to prescribe it because it didn't have the, D the T3 that um, desiccated thyroid does. And believe it or not, they were worried that people were going to end up with T3 deficiencies. But let me ask you a question. If someone doesn't check a T3 level, how do you know if they're T3 deficient? And I think that's the big frustration for a lot of thyroid patients that become educated. Because what happens is you know that you should be getting your T3 checked. And your doctor is just checking a TSH. All the TSH does is tell you that your pathway is working appropriately or that it, your TSH is normal. It doesn't tell you, again, that your T3 is normal. So when I order labs, I order a TSH, a free T3, a total T4. Um, why? Again, we need to know the whole picture, okay? So 
where did Synthroid come from? And I think this is one of those things that we look back and we say, all right, you know, when, when Wonder Bread took iodine out of um, their breads, did somebody know that this was going to happen? And did they create this T4 stuff so that they could make billions of, you know, billions upon billions of dollars as it is the number, well, it was the number one prescribed drug until the statins came along um, for cholesterol. So, no pharmaceuticals um, originally put out T4. And I, I found this story to be really interesting because, again, we all give these thyroid, um, desiccated thyroid, not we, other people give it a, a bad rap. And I get asked a lot of questions as the FDA recently pulled Nature Throid um, off the market, which is a desiccated thyroid, for lack of potency standards, meaning they, they had some variation in their, um, their supplementation. Now, let's talk about what happened to Synthroid, which is now owned by Abbott Labs, but it was owned by Knoll Pharmaceuticals. And Knoll basically came out with Synthroid, and it had come out so long before, right, before Knoll had it, that it was almost, um, it was grandfathered in. It was considered a med, it was before the FDA, right? So it was kind of grandfathered in as, a, as an accepted form of medication. And basically... The FDA um, finally, in, the, in I think it was 97, issued a notice saying, listen, all thyroid drugs need to get approval. We're over this. We're done. You know, we know you're a grandfathered in, but you have to get approval now. And they actually weren't going to even require kind of clinical trials at that time. Just approvals that your potency standards were up to where they needed to be. So, you know, when they, when Noel first got this information, they said, nope, we're not doing it. We refuse. And they petitioned. Um, so they petitioned for a long time. And when they finally got the verdict, um, they wanted to be petitioned for what we considered generally recognized as safe, which means they don't get approval um, and they can keep going on their merry way. Well, they refused, the FDA refused um, or rejected their um, request and said, we're going we're gonna to basically pull you off the market. You can we're going to cut your distribution down. But the problem was by the time this happened, they had already sold their, um, their medication to Abbott. Now, this was obviously done intentionally. And when you go back and you look um, at the testing that was done for, under, for Null over the years before the FDA um, required the approval, there's um, multiple reports of what we call um, subtherapeutic or potency standards issues. And again, this is in the this is in the late '90s, right? So this is not, um, you know, we're not talking about in the early 1900s. We're talking about in the '90s, and, and basically, they weren't able to make a consistent drug that was safe and the same dose all the time. So they FDA finally said, "Well, we need you to prove that it's going to stay the same dose for six months." And when Abbott took it over, Abbott said, "Well, we're not going to fight you on this. We'll do this." And, and they said they would submit to, um, by I think it was in August of 20, 2001, we will submit um, to you guys to get approval. And, and they eventually did. But when you look back at the data on, on Synthroid and the potency standards and, and how they were not able to keep consistent potency over time, I think it's really interesting that we chastise these um, these desiccated thyroid companies for not being able to do so. Meanwhile, those companies have been around since the, like I said, the eight, the late, or that drug since the late 1800s. Um, so, you know, I, again, there's, everybody absorbs these compounds differently. 
I think what's really important to talk about with desiccated thyroid is when we give back a desiccated thyroid to somebody who's what we call Hashimoto's or autoimmune, we find that sometimes they can't tolerate it because they make antibodies to it. If it looks like your own thyroid hormone too much, your body starts fighting it. So, you know, there are definitely reasons to, what I say, um, either change up your thyroid replacement or maybe even combo it where you use a little bit of one and a little bit of the other because your body is going to want to fight these thyroid, um, this thyroid hormone because it looks so similar to your own. And, and that's, you know, that's obviously a frustrating problem. Nobody wants to have that happen, especially when it's working for them for a while, but it does happen over time. Um, to a lot of people. So in those cases, I will switch them to a T4 um, and usually a T3. So let's talk about T3 for a minute. So T3 is, we call it Cytomel, but that's just the trade names. And T3 is literally just T3. It's biologically active, metabolism-boosting T3. Um, And it's in a little tablet form. And this is taken usually twice a day as well. It does have a pretty short half-life. And it is similar to armor in that it doesn't, it doesn't last a full day. So we dose that twice a day and it comes usually about five milligrams. We do five or 10 milligrams, um, twice a day. What can it do? Well, this is where we run into maybe some issues sometimes of raciness, palpitations, not sleeping, um, and those kind of things. So I think what you really need to think about when we replace thyroid hormone is looking at symptoms ranking where they are and making sure none of them get worse and that, you know, you're improving symptomatology. Numbers being different on a lab test doesn't really tell me anything. Um, The other thing that I think people don't understand is when you test for thyroid hormones, when you're looking at desiccated or at at armor, again, they have a very short half-life. They're not staying in your system for prolonged periods of time. So when you're checking labs and you're checking morning labs and you're checking them fasting, you're not getting a level of thyroid hormone that, that they're feeling when they take their pills. So you're getting what I call a trough level. You're getting the lowest level when it's already out of their system. So I do have people take Nature Thyroid, Armor Thyroid, Cytomel about three hours or two to three hours before their lab test in the very an understanding that it might be high. But I want to see if they're absorbing it. I want to see where their peak is because if I know where their peak is, I can know where they're falling to approximately. Um, And I also want to know um, what, you know, if they're making antibodies and that kind of thing. So those things are really important to me. Our um, Synthroid has a longer half-life. So that will actually build up in your system over time. That is one of the better qualities of it, right? So Synthroid or T4 in any form um, Tyrosin is another one. There's a bunch of them. They will actually, you, you don't have to have someone take them before their lab tests. Okay. So that to me is something they would leave off. They'd, they'd come in with that fasting. And that's something I think people make a mistake about a lot. Um, and, you know, it, it's something to ask your doctor when you go to get checked, because I think that one of those things to remember is not all doctors are knowledgeable in this. And in order to to do this efficiently, you're going to keep coming up low, generally speaking, for the armor and the um, Cytomel if you just take them um, in the morning, especially because you're going to be going 24 hours without taking them. If you take them in the afternoon too, you might get a little bit of a blood effect, but for the most part, it's going to still come up low. 
Okay. So let's talk a little bit about iodine replacement and, and what happens if you take a little too much iodine. So iodine is a really wonderful detoxer. Um, so it's great to clean out the liver. It's great to bind heavy metals and, and excrete them. So we start off taking it very slow. And, and the reason I do this is because I can tell you from experience, I had it myself. Iodine, um, when it binds up things and gets rid of them out of, through the liver, if your body is super toxic and it doesn't want to get detoxed very quickly, you can feel lousy before you get better, meaning you can have headaches, achy, fevery, feeling yucky. And that's because the liver is not ready to be, go through all of that clean out. Um, you know, we know that, um, that iodine used to be dosed basically until you had diarrhea. So you'd actually take the Lugol solution and you'd keep adding drops until, until you actually had gastric symptoms and then you'd back off. So it's similar to the fact that we do it, but we start slow so that you don't get those symptoms. But if you get any kind of GI upset or in, like I said, fevery, achy, headachy, then you back off of the iodine. Um, iodine can also cause some cardiac, some palpitations as well because it can raise the thyroid. Um, so we do make sure, want to make sure that you don't have any raciness and don't have any shortness of breath or increased anxiety or anything like that. Um, we now use an algae-based, kind of a seaweed-based iodine, at least in my office. Um, I, way back when, used a little bit of Lugol solution. I was probably a resident um, when I did that with a, with a doc. And, and Lugol's worked great. It's just a little bit messy. And it can be a little bit just hard to do in general. So there are places that do a liquid iodine that you can use. And that does a nice job as well. Um, so... All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, what, what to, how often are we going to recheck labs? So I would like to recheck labs in general. You know, people tend to get them done at six to eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks. And again, when we're working with some of these shorter half-life drugs, I think we can actually check them a little bit more quickly. Um, you know, you're, you'd be surprised at how in six to eight weeks, maybe even last four to six weeks, we can see a difference in the thyroid hormone with um, desiccated thyroid, iodine, um, B12, vitamin D, and A and K, and just adding, um, like I said, the desiccated thyroid hormone. If you're doing T4, um, T4 really does take a little bit because you have to convert it to T3. So you're going to find that that, that timeline is going to be closer to your three-month mark. And, you know, Sometimes when people are pretty bad off, they don't want to wait that three months. So I do find for people satisfaction, if you will, and feeling better more quickly, that that Armour Thyroid is a really good idea. Um, I also use a brand called Ecothyroid, and Ecothyroid is also desiccated glandular, um, and that is a bovine-based, and it's, it's wonderful. It's New Zealand bovine, and that's a really good one as well. Um, it is by PHP Labs, and it's wonderful. So um, if you guys have any questions on that, just message me on, on my Facebook or my Instagram, and we can, we can kind of look into that. So, you know, let's, let's go back a little bit and just talk about symptoms and, and them being difficult to tease out. So when someone comes into me and they're saying that they have their hair is falling out, they um, are exhausted all the time, they're gaining weight, they're constipated, it's a really generic statement, right? These are things that can be a lot of problems. 
And for the most part, I would say that almost everybody has what I would call a subacutely low thyroid, where their thyroid is just, especially as the age, is just not working as well as it should. So optimizing all the things that go into making your thyroid hormone are really important. It's sometimes not as important to get the numbers up as it is to get the, co- the cofactors back. Um, so getting that B12 on board, that D, that C, that iodine, um, and when I say B, please make sure it's a methylated B. All of those things are so important, the iodine and, and even maybe putting back some desiccated thyroid. But even without that desiccated thyroid, getting those compounds back will help your body work more efficiently. It, and then in turn, it'll help the insulin become a little bit more sensitive. It might even help your um, sex hormones to work a little bit better. So, you know, I think that's that's the key is really starting. You don't even need to get lab work for some of this. Getting the gut in check. Make sure we work on gut health and getting the inflammation down because all of these things are connected. Um, it's a metabolic triad. It's a metabolic pyramid. And when that starts to happen, the immune system gets bad. And then you start to get other immune system issues. And we need to work on that. So on my website, I do have a bunch of products that you can start without necessarily having to do my program. Um, And I think that's one of the questions that I get asked most often. Do we have to do your wellness program to get um, help? And I would say no. You can listen to my podcast and my radio program. And you can understand that there's really simple things that you can do that really can help. And when your gut doesn't absorb your nutrients, that's a big one. When your immune system is on overdrive and fights your thyroid, that's a big one. Um, When you don't have the cofactors necessary to make your thyroid hormone, that's huge. So you can get the D-bomb, which is on my website, for your vitamin D and your A and your K. You can get your um, methylated B12, which is just called B12. Um, You can get the gut shield or the gut calm, um, which is in chocolate and vanilla. I'm actually drinking my chocolate one right now, for those of you watching. Um, the That will help to calm down the inflammation, help you with absorption, help the immune system. So, and um, iodine, I can get you separately as well. That's one thing I don't have on my site, but we have it on our website with our full script. And that iodine um, we have is a six and a quarter or 12.5 milligram. And it helps so much for just getting started on your thyroid hormone um, regulation. So, you know, and, and there's other things to think about with thyroid hormones, um, like genetics and viruses that can cause it. And is it being affected by Lyme or anything like that? And that absolutely can be the case. So we want to make sure there's no other confounding issues that are aggravating this. Um, so, you know, when, you, when it comes to all of these things, do you have to get labs drawn? No. Can you start with just the easy things? Yes. And I'd highly, highly, highly recommend that. And then if you just want to send me a message to ask me questions, I'm more than happy to answer them to the best of my ability. Um, you know, when it comes to consults, we can do a consult pretty easily. Um, there's an intake on my website. It's mydrlori.com, and you just click on that, and you just go to the link, and you do an intake. That intake comes right to me. It doesn't go to anybody else. And the great thing about that is I can take a look at that, and we can even if you have existing labs, you can upload them. And we can see if there's anything that we can, um, that we can do to help. Um, because there's, there's sometimes a, there's enough information already out there that you've given me to be able to come up with, um, you know, come up with a game plan without necessarily having to get more, more information. Um, it, I think it's key, guys, and, and I'm going to kind of start wrapping it up with this. We need to critically think about what is going on in medicine, in our world, and 
in, it's just in life in general and not necessarily follow blindly what someone is telling us and, and critically think and examine. Because if we had critically examined, um, let's just say the, the Wolf-Wyckoff um, phenomena study, when I looked at that and realized that people actually took this as fact, um, that iodine was creating these um, hypothyroid conditions and these goiters, um, when they didn't even measure thyroid hormone to figure this out, um, I think it's crazy. So we need to critically take into our own hands what is going on, look at it, think about it, do the research, figure it out for yourselves. Because when you end up on my doorstep, generally speaking, you've been frustrated because you've been in so many other offices and not had success. So to have success, you need to take control of your own health and you need someone that's going to listen to you. So, um, you know, this is something that I think is, is crucial to healthcare. And, and honestly, our world in general is just really understanding how things work and not just being um, judgmental without understanding it. So, um, you know, if we hadn't had this wolf wife cough situation, we might never have been in a situation where we said iodine was bad for us. Um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, if our thyroids have iodine and we're, we, we're, we're basically saturated, any radioactive iodine that's out there, we're not going to absorb. And that actually was a big thing during um, war is that, you know, you'd have iodine pills so that you could take the iodine so that you didn't end up with radioactive iodine in your thyroid, um, which if we think about it is pretty significant, Right. Um, we want the iodine there so that you, we can't uptake something else and put it in its place that's carcinogenic. So I'm going to close on that, guys. So mydrlori.com, M-Y-D-R-L-O-R-I.com. Just go to the wellness intake and fill it out. Or you can go to the shop on there and start grabbing some stuff to optimize that thyroid and get your metabolism back in check. All right. So we'll see you next Wednesday night at seven or 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this is Anti-Aging Unravel with Dr. Lori Gerber. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Anti-Aging Unraveled. Be sure to join Dr. Lori Gerber again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week and keep you aging gracefully.